Welcome to the last Tisky Sour before Christmas. And I'm feeling comparatively festive compared to Monday, where I was feeling a little bit miserable about the options facing us. One reason is personal. It looks like I will be out of isolation for Christmas Day. That's because they've reduced the time that one has to stay inside from 10 to 7 days. I'll have to test negative on, on lateral flow tests, but that seems to be going okay so far. On the more general level, we're getting some somewhat reassuring data out now about Omicron and, and how serious, how severe it might be. But lots and lots is up in the air. There's still lots of unknowns. I'll be talking to an expert about that later. I just thought I'd start with those, those two slightly uplifting stories, at least at least for me. We are also going to be talking tonight about a, a Scrooge, someone who has made themselves a bit of a Scrooge, Rishi Sunak, not giving enough money to hospitality industries suffering right now. We're also going to talk about Nick Ferrari. He says it's an, a terrible argument he made about the NHS and Boris Johnson's polling. Straight on to our first story. As anyone who has wandered around London recently will know, or anyone who's, who's spoken to someone who have, if you've been isolated in London, you will know that Omicron is more than capable of emptying our high streets and emptying pubs and restaurants, even without government restrictions. That's meant there's been a lot of pressure on Rishi Sunak to introduce extra support for the struggling hospitality and leisure industries, but he has dragged his feet. He was in California all last week. On Tuesday, he did step up. He made an announcement. He said there'd be £6,000 for every business in these sectors, as well as an offer to help cover sick pay. Firstly, to protect jobs and businesses in the hospitality and leisure sectors, the government is introducing a new package of grants worth a billion pounds. Businesses in those sectors can claim new one-off cash grants of up to £6,000 for business premises. And we're topping up local councils funding by £100 million so they can support other local businesses at their discretion. Second, we're making available £30 million through our successful Culture Recovery Fund to support theatres, museums and other important cultural institutions. Both these measures will apply in England with funding available for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And lastly, across the whole United Kingdom, we're reintroducing our rebate scheme for statutory sick pay. Now, currently, if someone needs time off because of COVID, it's businesses that cover the cost of their statutory sick pay. Under our new scheme, small and medium-sized businesses with fewer than 250 employees will be able to claim a cash rebate from government to cover those costs for two weeks for every employee. So you've got six grand per business in the hospitality sector. And also the government will pay back businesses if they need to pay statutory sick pay, which is only £96 a week, the lowest in Europe. We'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. First of all, let's focus on whether or not this is enough money for hospitality bosses, for the people who, who run these businesses. Sunak, he seemed pretty smiley there. He thought it was generous. Bosses in the industry are less impressed. I mean, it's better than nothing, for sure. Um, but to be honest, it just doesn't touch the sides for our bus businesses like us and for us. I think with a 40% reduction in revenue, which I don't think makes us unique, I think that's quite typical across the board, uh, we're losing a huge amount more than £6,000. That publican speaking to Sky News was, was right. The revenue she had lost was not atypical. So the industry body says that the average loss over the past few weeks is 40 to 60% in revenue. You've got to remember that December is usually the sector's most profitable month. Workers have also got a raw deal. So that was the perspective of, uh, of someone who, who runs the pub. What about the people who work in them losing thousands of shifts, cumulatively, because there are less people going into the businesses, going into the pubs. It was in this context that on Sky News this morning, Care Minister Gillian Keegan was asked, why haven't you reintroduced furlough? Well, because people are still working. I mean, I, I went out for a family meal yesterday. You know, there was the, the pub was not every table was full, but most of it was. You know, people are still going out and people are still enjoying themselves. So, you know, we're trying to get that balance again. But actually, most businesses I've spoken to are actually very appreciative of this support. So obviously, you found one there doesn't think it's enough. You'll always find that. But, you know, this is this is a billion pounds that we have just announced. And it is there to support businesses across our country, hopefully for a short period of time, 
until we can, um, you know, get over this uh, latest uh, variant and the wave of uh, disruption that it's caused. That was Gillian Keegan. So you, 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 you got, you've got the one business owner in Britain who's not happy to have received six grand, which for many businesses is, is about a day and a half's takings. So if you've got a, a third of people going into your, your pub, that's not going to cover it. She also clearly doesn't understand how bar work functions. She thinks if the pub is open, that means no one needs extra cash, but you'll lose shifts if there's only you know, 25%, 40% of people going into the pub as usually would. Rishi Sunak, as I said, he said he, he will give a rebate for sick pay to businesses, but that remains at £96. So that means you, you don't have much incentive as a worker to get tested because your sick pay is presumably going to be less than what you would have got paid if you went into work. This was a gap highlighted by Shadow Work and Pension Secretary Jonathan Ashworth, also on Sky. Well, it's obviously better than nothing. <clears throat> and as you say, I think I think you, you in some ways answered it in, the, in, in your question. There's a bit of movement on statutory sick pay. I think the failure to pay people decent sick pay throughout this whole crisis has been, has, has been a monstrous failing of the crisis. And you've now got people in low-paid jobs who are probably looking at their hours being reduced as well, because if they work in hospitality, because of the uh, because of the way in which hospitality has been so hammered, who are forced to make a decision about going to work or losing wages. And th- this virus spreads when people say they might be feeling a bit off, but they think, you know what, if I go and get tested and I'm positive, then I've lost money in the run up to Christmas. How am I going to get the presents? How am I going to put food on the table? I'm going to carry on going to work. That's because they don't get adequate sick pay. And, and I've been making this point for like, well, you know, I was, as you said, I was doing the health job previously. From January of 2020, uh, February of 2020, I've been making this point still hasn't been fixed. I don't understand why the government ministers cannot get their head around the very basic, simple fact that if you are low paid and you lose money, if you are sick, you're going to be, you're going to try and avoid getting a test because you're going to need to go to work. It's very basic and yet they still won't fix it. That's a good point. Well made by Jonathan Ashworth. That point was also reflected in the latest release from SAGE. That's the body of of, of the government's official scientific advisors on a paper on non-pharmaceutical interventions. They said one obvious thing that the government could do, which would make compliance much stronger than it currently is, is if you paid people to self-isolate, if you gave people financial support, the government still refusing. Dahlia. I want to bring you in on this. And I suppose we've talked about sick pay a lot. So I actually want to focus on, on the hospitality sector specifically and how pathetic it is, the amount of money that Rishi Sunak has coughed up for this sector. And also this kind of confuses me in a way because people who own small businesses, it's not one of those situations where they're obviously Labour voters. These are people who might be Tory voters or, or might be swing voters. And yet Rishi Sunak is, is saying, oh, well, even if you've only got 40% of your custom, a few thousand pounds should do. Look, in total, we're spending a billion. This is great. What are you complaining about? I have never come even close to running a business, but even I know that six (laughs) grand is probably going to cover you for like a a day when it comes to hospitality. Like six grand when it comes to like business expenses is, is nothing. It's almost insulting. And the government is really... And this seems to be the theme of the COVID response, right, which is this worst of both worlds model where you're keeping things fully open so that bars, you know, have to pay to keep the lights on. They have to, of course, pay their staff. Uh, They don't have access to a furlough scheme whilst obviously not having the footfall to actually support those expenses, because it's probably not a good idea right now to go to a bar or a restaurant. It's probably it's against public health advice. But as you and as you said, this actively disincentivizes workers from from isolating or or testing if they have symptoms. And that is because when you think about the fact that a quarter of Brits have less than a thousand pounds savings and the fact that a lot of those people are probably going to be hospitality workers and the fact that hospitality workers are generally more precarious. It therefore. Yeah. And this is a particularly tight time of year with people buying presents, etc., it's inevitable that workers won't be able to afford to isolate. Um, and so that is going to elongate this issue further. But it's also not really the business owners that are going to suffer from this. It's going to be the staff because hospitality workers are incredibly precarious. And that precarity means that when it comes to the belt tightening, that's probably going to happen from January onwards as a result of this loss of income over this Christmas period, 
it's the staff that are going to get let go. It's the staff that are going to lose shifts. And it's the staff that are going to miss out on those Christmas tips that they often uh, rely on. But I think that question that you said about, you know, people who own small and medium businesses, these aren't necessarily Labour voters. A lot of them might be potential Tory voters or swing voters. That's a completely, that's a really important point. And it's such a huge exposition of that key principle that the Tories market themselves as, which is, you know, we are a friend to small and medium businesses. We're a friend to entrepreneurs, to, to small enterprises, because as you pointed out, it's the small businesses that are likely to be irreversibly hit by this. They won't be able to weather the storm of losing out on income, Christmas income, which a lot of them rely on, uh, without without adequate support from the government. Six grand, you might as well not bother. It's not the Starbucks, it's not the pret it's not these massive chains that are going to suffer, although their staff might suffer, but it's not those chains that are going to have to close or are going to be put out of business. It's the ones, it's the small independent cafes and restaurants that won't be able to absorb that cost and not just the lack of financial support, but also the lack of forewarning, the lack of giving people an indication of what the next week or two weeks might look like. That's also really important for crisis mitigation for, for smaller businesses. And so I think this is a really important opportunity for us to show that Tories like to present themselves as friends to small businesses, you know, what they call in the US mom and pop shops, in order to give themselves a kind of cuddlier, more sort of down to earth impression of themselves. And because when you actually count in terms of, you know, the number of businesses that exist in the UK, most of them are small to medium enterprises. They might not represent the majority of income, but they do actually make up a lot of businesses in this country. But that's because the key priority of this government is not actually about being friendly to those small and medium businesses. It's actually about maintaining this ideological war, which is that spending is bad, helping people with quote unquote handouts is bad, that paying people not to work, even if it means that they're keeping themselves and their colleagues, their co-workers, their you know, clients safe, that that is bad. And also that essentially the system that they design is to protect and provide a soft landing and basically to make it only possible to survive if you are a Starbucks. That is the system that they have designed. If you are a small or medium business, you're not going to be able to survive this. And then you'll probably be blamed for it because they like to individualize all of these issues. But the big businesses, the big companies, the sort of mega, mega conglomerates, these are the ones that are going to be able to weather this storm. And this is not only bad for those business owners, it's also bad for us as a community because it's those independent restaurants and bars and cafes that actually make our high street and actually make our local areas nice places to live rather than a Starbucks on every street corner. I mean, it's an interesting situation. It's, all, it's almost one where I think trying to work out how the policy is internally coherent is, is quite difficult. And actually, I think what's potentially more persuasive is to just look at it as, as positioning inside the Conservative Party. So Rishi Sunak wants to replace Boris Johnson as leader of the Conservative Party. He wants to go into the next general election saying, I'm going to both slash taxes and I'm not going to increase the deficit. That seems to be sort of the identity he, he wants to create for himself. So he, so he is being a bit stingy at the moment with, with money, genuinely. But then also, what do Tory backbenchers really care about at the moment? Coronavirus restrictions. They really don't want COVID restrictions. Rishi Sunak, by not giving financial support to businesses, makes it much more difficult for the government to introduce those restrictions, because obviously you can't really do one without the other. So if Rishi Sunak is saying, I'm not going to put forward any meaningful support for these businesses, then that makes it harder for, for Sajid Javid or Boris Johnson and the scientists to say, no, let's do it. So it could be that he's sort of forcing Boris Johnson's hand on that question, which leads me straight into the next story, which is kind of an update on everything we know about Omicron, what we've learned in the last 48 hours, because things are moving incredibly fast when it comes to our understanding of Omicron and how this informs the policies that our governments are adopting or, or not adopting. And to discuss those big developments, I'm joined by Oliver Barnes, health and science reporter at the Financial Times. Thank you so much for joining us, Oliver. Thanks for having me. And I was saying before we went on, I can tell Oliver's had a busy day because I've read, you know, two or three of his articles. 
today that I, I really like the FT's pandemic reporting. We're going to go through sort of issue by issue. I want to start with the one that really brightened my day, which is the shortening of the time that people have to self-isolate if they test positive for COVID from 10 to seven days. Um, lots of people delighted. That might mean they'll be out by Christmas Day. I have seen some people on Twitter say, oh, this is the last thing we need to do because there's already COVID spreading. This is just going to create a few more possibilities. Why, Oliver, has this changed now? And is it a good idea? I think it's basically a pragmatic decision. Obviously, with Omicron's kind of rapid spread, you know, we went from a couple of weeks ago having never heard of it. Now it's, you know, dominating the infection rates and our lives, I suppose, to a bit. The government's obviously having to contend with loads of workplace absences for businesses, but then also for essential public services. And that's because people have to isolate, right? So I think UKHSA did an analysis basically comparing how effective an isolation period is of seven days ended with two lateral flow tests on day six and day seven, or a 10-day period with you know no lateral flow tests. They're good at picking up on people when they're actually in the infectious period shedding virus so they're a pretty surefire guarantee if you you know you're in isolation right now michael am i right thinking you know if, if you you take those lateral flows on day six and day seven and you've tested positive on both that's a pretty surefire guarantee that you're not infectious and therefore you can go back out in society and of course that helps the government solve that kind of pragmatic problem that there are loads of absences you know this is why we've we've seen you know issues with theaters cancelling shows and then obviously that's even worse if that goes through to you know, essential public services like transport or the national grid or whatever. It does add an element of jeopardy, I suppose, I think, to the to the isolation. Because one thing about isolation is you can just forget about everything. You know, you know it's going to be a set. Now you've got to do your lateral flow in the morning. You're really tense whether or not it's going to be negative. Mine was negative this morning, so I am feeling very positive right now. But I know lots of people who, who have been testing positive for the whole 10 days, and I can imagine that being incredibly frustrating. Um, let's look at the new or the next development we have. Um, which is on severity. So lots of studies have come out in the past 24 hours in particular, actually, they've sort of been, been flooding out. I want to go to a BBC update, which lots of people would have, would have read and, and thought, wow, this is wonderful. So they report, wave of Omicron appears to be milder with potentially around two-thirds reduction in those needing hospital treatment preliminary studies in the UK and South Africa find. Oliver, that sounds pretty good. But I also know that the data that's coming out is incredibly complicated. And when I tried to read through it, I was a bit like, there's so much going on here. How can you make sense for us of, of the data that's coming out on the severity of, of Omicron? This is why my day has been so frenetic, because it seems like severity studies are a bit like London buses. They all just kind of come at once. The, the main problem here, I think, that's confusing people is there are two issues at play. It's like severity intrinsically, i.e. this virus, you know, uh, an unvaccinated, non-immune person gets exposed to this. Is this a less threatening virus and is it more likely to result or, or less likely to result in severe disease? So that's one element of things. And then the second one is when it interacts with our very, very immune populations in South Africa, of course, that's mainly because of prior infection. In the UK, that's because of vaccination. How will it turn out in terms of like infection to hospitalization rates? What we can see pretty much from all these studies we've got in the past kind of 24, 36 hours, that's a study from England done by Neil Ferguson's team, a study from Scotland and also a study from South Africa, is that when uh, Omicron does kind of hit up against and collide with a very immune population, the infection to hospitalization rate. So, you know, if you had a thousand infections, how many hospitalizations you'd expect from that? falls. The reason for that, though, is kind of unclear. And one reason I've had posited to me by a number of experts is that because uh, Omicron is able to cause breakthrough infections and reinfections at a higher rate, all the extra infections it would cause on top of Delta are effectively mild infections. So that makes the rate look preferable. The question that's left outstanding, of course, is whether some of this might be because of the virus kind of biologically changing to become milder. And there was a very, very slight indication from Neil Ferguson's research that was released today that perhaps it's kind of like in the ballpark of maybe 10% intrinsically milder, which is obviously great. The question that remains after that, though, is can that you know slight drop off in severity compensate for the 
like insane levels of growth that we were seeing, or particularly last week, but we're still seeing very high levels of growth in infections. And that's the kind of, in a way, the, the, the dilemma that policymakers are having to grapple with when they think about introducing restrictions or not. We're all now used to hearing probably that the big problem with Omicron was that even if it is even 50% less severe than Delta, for example, if you have three times as many cases and you still get more people hospitalized because a small proportion of a very, very large number can still be bigger than a large proportion of a small number. And we were all, I mean, many people still are, many people rightly are. People are very, very worried about this because of Omicron's like incredible transmissibility. But also looking at the numbers over the past couple of days, I've been getting, you know, a little bit confused, wondering how to interpret them. It might seem weird I'm saying this because there was a record 106,000 new cases today. So a record has been broken. It's not like, oh, the, the cases have got away. But if you look over the past few days, and this is the, the date that cases were reported. So you've got today, it was 106,000. Yesterday, 90,000. Obviously, that's a big jump. But before that, 91,000. Before that, 82,000. Before that, 90,000. Before that, 93,000. Before that, 88,000. So to me, we were told these cases are going to double every two days, or at least Omicron was going to double every two days, and it's now a majority. I'd expect those numbers to be rising quicker than they are. Before I go to you, Oliver, I just want to show London as well. So in London, where Omicron hit first, so this is sort of the, the canary in the coal mine, as it were, it looks like cases could even have peaked. So on the 15th of December, there were 27,650 people who, who tested positive. So this is on the day of the specimen, so the day that the person did the swab. Um, Oliver, what should we make of this? I mean, obviously, this is not good. It's not good to have 100,000 cases a day. But at the same time, when they said it's yeah. doubling every two days, I was expecting to see 400,000 cases by now. Yeah, I think the, the, the point is, in a way, uh, exponential growth, it looks terrifying, but it can't continue on forever. It has to, at some point, taper off. I expect there are a number of different things at play. In London, what we've seen is, I think, you know, I live in South London, just looking amongst my friendship group, you know, people in their 20s, behavioral patterns have changed pretty dramatically. At one point, I think in the space of about five days, three or four percent of Lambeth tested positive for coronavirus, which is just insanely high numbers. Once that kind of bad news got out, a lot of people adapted their behavior and that has rode back the doubling times. It does look positive. There is one uncertainty, though. We can't be sure we've come to a peak because testing capacity is kind of so stretched at the moment. Everyone wants PCR tests, and PCR tests are the way we assess a kind of peak in infections and monitor that. And in a way, it would be very helpful if the government did give a pretty accurate assessment of how strained capacity is. We can only kind of estimate from there are like 600,000 tests you can do each day under Pillar 2, which is the community testing scheme, and then we can look at the number of tests being done. But we can't be 100% sure it's actually being strained. If it's not being strained, maybe cases in London have peaked. But that, I mean, that is a way that the uncertainty that we have to deal with. But the second thing is a lot of those infection rises we were seeing last week, the specimen data you referred to when there was really high specimen, um, a really high number of cases last week. A lot of those are already baked into hospitalizations that are yet to appear. So in London today, there was a record day for hospitalizations. There were about 350 hospitalizations in a single day. That's the highest since early February. We'd expect that to continue going up. And because of what we were talking about before, about that kind of unknown around severity, we don't know quite how it's going to go, how high it's going to go from the numbers that are already baked in. So we can take some kind of hope from it, but it's definitely not a certainty that we will be able to avoid restrictions because of this. Which is why um, people are still talking about restrictions. So there were lots of announcements today and yesterday from the, well, three of the four nations. So we have new restrictions in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. We'll go through some of those now. So in Scotland from Boxing Day for three weeks, there will be indoor standing events, which will be limited to 100 people, indoor seated events to 200 and outdoor events to 500. In hospitality, the one metre rule must be observed between groups and there'll be no crowds for football matches because that would obviously go above 500, and pubs to provide table service only. In Wales, the rules are stricter. Um, so First Minister Mark Drakeford today announced that outdoor events will be limited to 50, with 30 for indoor events. The rule of six will apply in pubs and restaurants, and it will be a legal offence 
um, to organise an indoor event with more than 30 people. That's significant because in, in Scotland, this is all based on restrictions on businesses and advice. In Wales, they're encouraging you know people to limit their household mixing, but it only becomes criminal. You're only subject to a fine if you have 30 people in, in your house or, or any, any private venue or anywhere, in fact, even if it's not private. Um, in Northern Ireland, new rules were announced this afternoon. So again, from Boxing Day, nightclubs will be closed. Dancing at hospitality venues, excluding weddings, will be prohibited. The rule of six will apply in hospitality venues. Again, with table service, people will be urged to limit meetings inside. So those urgings are also happening in Wales and Scotland. Um, face mask rules strengthen. That's also happening in all of the nations. Obviously, if you live in England, you're probably aware that nothing so far has been announced in England, and we're still expecting potentially some news in the next couple of days or, or on Boxing Day. It's, it's unclear. Oliver, do you think that restrictions such as what we're seeing in Wales, Northern Ireland and, and Scotland are inevitable in England and it's just the Tory party sort of sorting out its own internal beef? Or are there actual scientists saying that maybe we can get through this without introducing restrictions such as those? Well, we keep on hearing from the from the, the the government that they're waiting on new data, and this kind of phrase has slightly puzzled me because a lot of the data is already there in a way. The the data that they are kind of waiting on is this severity data, and as we discussed earlier, I'm not even though it's a little bit positive, I'm not sure it will compensate for the really high levels of spread. I think one interesting indicator I had, I was having a, a chat with this researcher who's on SpyM on the Sage Modeling uh, Committee. Uh, yesterday, but he also works in Denmark, and Denmark have done a similar thing to Scotland. They've introduced, you know, fairly not super draconian, but fairly draconian restrictions. They've you know shut um, museums, various like cultural attractions, and, and limited um, mixing in restaurants, etc. And he was saying, in a way, the UK has kind of fallen, England in, in particular, of course, has fallen into this kind of trap that it always does of being quite Panglossian and never taking preemptive action. I think the thing that would be bad with restrictions is, of course, if if they come too late, because you know they they may actually not kind of have any massive effect on on infection rates. I, I, I'm of the opinion that it's likely that the government will have to to implement restrictions, just because even if that hundred thousand figure isn't growing a huge amount, if it stays stubbornly high, it's uncomfortable and it could feed through into hospitalizations. But as you as you were talking about earlier, if London's already peaked. What are restrictions like doing in London? You know, they will bring the they will bring the peak down quicker, but they didn't actually avert us getting to that very high point. And it's of course the high point that doctors and nurses in the NHS worry about because if you get a really high peak in cases, you can get all your kind of hospitalizations concertinering together over like a week or two week, two weeks, and it's that dramatic kind of pressure on the health service, which is what we talk about when it's being overwhelmed. I think. Even if we didn't opt for plan B, it's very unlikely we're going to get the same numbers of people in hospital at one time. Back in January last year, we had about 40,000, January this year rather, we had about 40,000 people in hospital at one moment. I don't think we're going to get to that. But it is possible we could near the kind of daily admissions figures from January, which were in the region of like three to 3,500. But because of the lower severity, the, the kind of length of stay will be lower and therefore people will leave hospital quicker. All of this, though, just really creates this complicated picture for the government about how, how, you know, what the step is next in terms of restrictions. At the point that the hospitals are almost overwhelmed, that we sort of have to have a solidarity lockdown because they're like, oh, we can't have images of people at nightclubs when there are people coming off beds in the hospital. And then no one's willing to point out that actually everyone in hospital, that happened two weeks ago. So the, the timing of it, that's what stresses me out. But that was... All incredibly clarifying. Thank you so much for speaking to us this evening, Oliver. Thanks for having me. Next story. Former Prime Minister Tony Blair has been on talk radio with a message for the unvaccinated. Let's take a look. Frankly, if, if, you, if you're not vaccinated at the moment and you're, you're eligible and you've got no health reason for not being vaccinated, you're not just irresponsible. I mean, you're an idiot. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, that is... Truthfully, you are. I mean, because this Omicron variant is so uh, contagious. You know, if you're unvaccinated and you're in circulation, you're going to get it. And, and that's what's going to put 
you know, that is going to put a lot of strain on the on, on the health service. I mean, almost half the people in the ICU are unvaccinated. And then it's really important. We, we Now, we shouldn't target these people who are unvaccinated in a heavy-handed way, but we should be trying to go after them and persuade them. You know, maybe all sorts of reasons, but honestly, it is in their own interest, never mind the public interest, for them to get vaccinated. And then yeah. finally, we've got to we've got to redouble the efforts to get vaccination out into the third world. If you haven't been vaccinated, you're not just irresponsible, you're an idiot. Dahlia, is this smart public health messaging from Tony Blair? I hate this. Like, first of all, he's probably one of Britain's most unliked, unpopular, untrusted public figures in the political landscape. So he's unlikely to be convincing anyone of anything. But secondly, of course, you know, I, it is deeply frustrating to think of people being unvaccinated by choice, you know, especially when you think that so many people in the world are not able to access just one dose of the vaccine. And then you have people here that are refusing to get vaccines that this country has essentially hoarded from the global south. The fact is, is that people don't respond to shaming and coercion like this. You're actually more likely to turn someone who's maybe a bit hesitant to get the vaccine, but is convincible. You're more likely to turn them into an outright refuser where they dig their heels in using these kinds of tactics of shame and coercion than you are to actually convince them to get to get the vaccine. Um, we know that people are more likely, for example, to be responsive to, to education from their families or, or their friends. And that's because there's a sort of under, there's a sort of undergirding element of trust and, and love there rather than sort of punishment and, and shame. And so when we're actually thinking about it, you know, overcoming the, the lack of trust and overcoming that, that hesitancy, we need to think first of all of effective public education. You know, I think especially amongst younger people who sort of think oh even if I get COVID it's fine I'm not going to go to hospital we need to to make it clear that there is still a reason to be vaccinated not just to prevent transmission but also because it is not true it is not the case that young people are safe from COVID increasing education on long COVID and how and the unknown impacts of COVID on people even if they're asymptomatic and the fact that you know so people, I often say when people say, oh, you don't know what's in the vaccine, you don't know what it's going to do to your body long term. I always say, to be honest, you don't know what COVID is going to do to your body long term. Uh, it's a much more unpredictable unknown than, than the vaccine. Second of all, we, we need to have open and, and shame free forums where people's concerns can be properly addressed, especially for those communities who have a historic mistrust of the establishment, including the medical establishment in this country, and people who haven't been listened to by doctors and medical professions, people who have been neglected, whose health has been neglected by the medical establishment. And so, you know, don't trust the vaccine or feel hesitant about it or or don't don't believe necessarily people who for whatever reason, and it's not because they're stupid, it's often because they might have some kind of medical trauma, who don't believe that the state is interested in their well-being. I'm thinking, for example, of undocumented people. You know, undocumented people are being told, you know, you can be vaccinated without the threat of being turned, in, turned to the home office. But in a country where, you know, homeless charities are sharing data with the home office, in a country that's just passed the Nationality and Borders Bill, you can't really, is it completely unreasonable for them to feel a bit unsure that they can really trust that messaging? It's not, it's not unreasonable. It's deeply unfortunate and it's deeply concerning, but it's not unreasonable. And I also think that the way that we can rebuild this trust is by not having the government continue to gaslight the population on the topic of COVID. You know, it is not unreasonable for people to look at the way the government is acting you know, hosting Christmas parties when we're all being told to, to isolate and all being told to quarantine just before Christmas last year. Things like removing the working from home mandate, you know, telling people, oh, you can't go and visit people, people, your friends or your family, but you can get on a tube and go to work. Things like that, not offering support for people isolating, telling us one thing, essentially, and doing something else. It's not surprising that some people are going to look at that gap between what's being said and what's being done and be suspicious, right? And be suspicious of other messaging that comes out of that. And that 
fracturing of people's reality where they are being, as I said, they're being told one thing and they're seeing and experiencing something else. That's the gap where conspiracy theories, where lack of trust, where all of these things that give way to vaccine hesitancy, that's where it flourishes. And that's on the government. That's on the, the, the people who are doing, creating this mistrust through their actions, through their behaviours. That's on them. It's actually not on individuals who are responding to that with hesitancy. As much as we might be frustrated, as much as it might spark a real reaction in us, you know, I have family members that are concerned about it. And but we need to try and figure out to act not from emotion and not from stigmatizing people, but actually from what works, which is good education, open forum where people people's concerns are addressed and rebuilding people's trust when it comes to messaging and information particularly on COVID. They're all really good points. I saw a tweet that went viral, I think it's this week or last week, that I really liked. It was from someone who worked at a vaccination centre, I'm either a healthcare worker or, or a doctor, and they were saying, look, if you, you know, we're all talking about people going to get their boosters, but if you haven't had your first dose, you're kind of the most important person to turn up, and no one is going to say, oh, why have you only just got your first dose? They're not all going to like, stand up and give you a round of applause, but they're not going to make a deal out of it. Everyone is going to be delighted to see you, essentially, if you're getting your first dose. So it, it, the, the point that this doctor made was, don't feel embarrassed. We All we want you to do is come and get your vaccine. And I think that message from from Tony Blair, you know, doesn't, doesn't really accord with that. The, the, I can't see that persuading anyone whatsoever. The Omicron variant threatens to overwhelm Britain's hospitals this January. But the truth is, Britain's health service has been overwhelmed for a long time already in terms of waiting times for emergency care operations and cancer treatment. 2019, the winter of 2019, was already the worst on record. That was, of course, before coronavirus. For me, this is an argument for funding our health service properly. However, when it came to solving crises in our NHS, LBC's Nick Ferrari had another idea. As we now know, the provision of NHS care, whether it's in hospitals, whether it's in clinics, whether it's at your GP, they are bouncing on the bottom at the moment because of COVID. It is time for radical action. And today I propose to you that you all have 12 appointments per annum. Okay, which obviously works out at one a month. After that, you will be charged, unless it is a desperately serious case, such as cancer, whatever it might. Obviously, that means all bets are off. You go into a different bracket. But if you constantly come along and say, "I've got a bump on my bottom," or "I've got earache," or "I don't know, I don't feel well," I need, I don't think I can go to work. Whatever it might be, the myriad of complaints that confront those poor men and women, the army of GPs. You'll effectively get one a month free, after which you'll be charged somewhere in the order, probably about 50 to £60. Pounds. It will not be means tested. That will be the end. If you do not attend an appointment, by the way, that will count for three of your 12, and you'll be fined £100 pounds for not making an appointment. Unless you call and say, I'm stuck in traffic or whatever, I had cheese and wine party at number 10 and I just can't get away because we're all in suits, uh, then you will be permitted. But if you don't, you'll be fined £100 pounds and you'll go down to nine a year. Now, that's my plan. I have to say, on my level, I found that kind of entertaining just because he'd, he'd come up with all of these figures himself. They'll be fined £50 or £60. And if you miss an appointment, that will be free from your, you know, it's all sort of like, how, how long have you been playing God for this morning, Nick Ferrari? But obviously, what he's suggesting is, is disgusting. So he's suggesting you should only get one free GP appointment per month. And anybody beyond that, you'd have to pay. What I found probably most distasteful there was when he said, it will not be means tested. You know, just in case you were, you were wondering or doubting that his intention here was, was really to punish the poor. As you can tell, my instant reaction to that video, very bad, very bad proposal. It's not how we're going to solve the crisis in the NHS. I also wanted to know from someone who knew more than myself. So I sent the clip to my sister, who is a doctor in the NHS. The first thing she said to me, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And then um, I, I've typed out her WhatsApp messages here, and I, I did think they're quite good, so I'm going to read them to you now. People with significant complex health conditions are the most in need of more appointments and probably the least able to pay. 
Why do we think it's the people that are using more than 12 appointments, which are the issue? Where is the evidence? The problem isn't people who unnecessarily use, say, free appointments. This is just an easy crowd pleaser. You're blaming others because most people can say, yeah, I don't use more than 12. Other assholes who use more than 12 are the problem. It's unlikely to save much money and penalize the most sick when they need it. She also went on to say, they also need to factor in how much it would cost to organize and administer a payment system before they can say it would save any money. I'm pretty sure GPs are not going to want to do that. They don't have the time and it's unethical and against the values of working for the NHS. Finally, GPs can triage their own patients' appointments using clinical expertise. A blanket fee after 12 appointments could in theory deter people from seeking advice from GPs for things like cancer, which are more costly in the long run if they are diagnosed late. Now, I was, I was trying to edit that down. I was like, actually, all of those points were very concise and very good. They're all the reasons why this is a terrible idea from Nick Ferrari. It would be an administrative nightmare. There's no need to think that people having more than 12 appointments instead of, you know, there will be other people who have unnecessary four appointments they didn't need. Maybe there's more of those and it adds up to more. In any case, this is not where the crisis in the NHS is coming from. There is not a crisis in the NHS because people are booking too many GP appointments. Where is it coming from? Money or lack thereof. Britain is really, really miserly when it comes to healthcare. So as a proportion of GDP, our health spending is the second lowest in the G7. This is data from 2017. The United States spends the most, 17% of GDP. That's they're kind of an exception there up there because they're incredibly inefficient and it will get sucked up by insurance companies. Let's move down to France, which is something we, we're more likely um, to want to replicate. They, they spend 11.3% of GDP on health. For Germany, it's 11.2%. For Japan, it's 109 For Canada, 107 And then in the UK, it's 9.6% of our GDP, which is down from 9.8% in 2013. Italy, below us, on 8.8%. Percent of spending as a proportion of GDP on health has declined. That's because of a Tory funding squeeze. So this data is from the King's Fund. They said the average um, yearly increase in health spending for the 70 years until 2010 was 3.7%. From 2010, it was only 1.4%. And that's below growth, which means that it shrunk as a percentage of GDP. Now, Often you people say, why are you saying there was a funding squeeze on the NHS if they rose it every year? For one, as I say, it's a smaller percentage of the GDP, but also because we have an aging population, if you essentially limit increases to 1%, that's a real-term cut when it comes to needs, which is why the performance of the NHS has, has radically declined over the past 11 years. Um, in terms of the impact of this spending squeeze and where this puts Britain comparatively, I have for you here the number of doctors per head of the population. And again, we don't score particularly well. So the UK has 2.8 doctors for every thousand people. And you can see the arrow pointing to us there. The average across um, the 33 countries here is free. Austria has 5.1 doctors for every 1,000 people. Germany, Italy, Lithuania, Norway, and Switzerland all have more than four doctors for every 1,000 people. And to remind you, we're on 2.8. There are only two European countries with fewer doctors per head of the population. They are Poland and Slovenia. And one final data point for you, the next chart is from the Times, and it shows acute hospital beds per 1,000 people. You can see Japan, Korea, and Germany topping the list with six to eight acute beds per 1,000. Whereas England, you're going to have to wait a while and I've got to go through quite a few countries because of the 34 OECD countries, we have the lowest number of acute beds per 1,000 people in Britain at 1.8. So there are six to eight acute beds per 1,000 people in Japan, Korea, and Germany. In the UK, it's 1.8. And then we, we wonder why we have NHS crises in the winter. We wonder why there are people on, on trolleys in corridors because we have a third of the beds per population of Germany. Dahlia, what, what's Nick Ferrari's game here? Does, does he really think that we could solve the crisis in the NHS by telling people to book less GP appointments? Or is, is he covering for something else? His game is the classic reactionary game of divide and conquer. It's taking a crisis that everyone is experiencing, you know, everyone is afraid of, and, and using it to turn people not just against one another, but against people who are more marginalized and more vulnerable. 
you know, the, the crisis in the NHS is viscerally clear to anyone who has tried to get healthcare, especially for anything complex in the past few years. We know it's almost impossible to get specialist attention, to get specialist support. We know that GPs don't have enough time to, to really listen and take in the complex nature of people's health issues. Uh, that things often don't get picked up in their early stages because there isn't the time and resources to catch things early. We tend to wait until things get really bad before they kind of we can get to the position where we're in front of a specialist. And so Nick Ferrari is taking that real experience and the very real fears and anxieties that that places in people and encouraging us to fight one another, to fight by implication here people with disabilities and long-term conditions who, as your sister points out, who will likely require more than 12 appointments a year, saying essentially that those people are drains on public services. It's almost a eugenics kind of logic in the way that it, by implication, frames people with disabilities as, as sort of drains on public services. Um, it also is about fighting, you know, people of colour and ethnic minorities who tend to have to often aren't listened to by healthcare professionals and so tend to have to advocate for themselves more, which takes up, they can take up longer amounts of time in order to get what they need from their healthcare services. So rather than directing us to criticise the kind of market logic that is infecting the NHS, you know, even though the NHS is still technically a, a public service, the logic of cost cutting of management consultants who have never done a day's work in their life as a, as a healthcare worker coming in and, and sort of putting in applying cost cutting measures to hospitals and GP surgeries rather than looking towards those systemic issues we're blaming people with disabilities ethnic minority people working class people who will require more from the NHS than 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 other than other communities and so the irony also is that, and your sister pointed this out really well, is that when it comes to healthcare, short-term cost-cutting doesn't work. It doesn't make sense, um, not healthcare-wise or financially. I remember um, once a GP was telling me about the impact that restrictions which have come in, I don't know when they came in, but maybe a few years ago, which basically meant that A, in a lot of GP surgeries, you can only bring up one healthcare issue per per session, which again, for a lot of people, healthcare issues are interlocking. The human body is not segmented in that way. Things tend to be interconnected. Um, and also that you can only see a GP for 10 minutes or 15 minutes at a time. And a GP that I was speaking to, who's been a GP for a really long time, said this idea was, def was brought in by someone who has never actually spoken to a GP because she told me that oftentimes you actually don't find out what is at the core of a person's health issues in the first 10 or 15 minutes of you seeing them. Oftentimes it's at the end of a consultation when the GP says, okay, you know, is there anything else you'd like to discuss? Is there anything you want to talk about? And that's when some of the most important underlying issues and information really comes out. So what this system actually creates is a scenario whereby the underlying causes of health issues aren't identified in their early stages when they could be managed easily. And, you know, to use a crass term, but this is their terminology, their logic, not mine, but can be managed cheaply. Um, instead, they are left unmonitored, unaccounted for, um, for a long period of time where they then become more serious, more complex and need more specialist and resource intensive support. So, the market logic doesn't work even it's unethical anyway in healthcare because it's not conducive to good healthcare but it fails even on its own terms on its own financial terms because it's not in a long-term sense resource savvy to cost cut especially at the site of primary care or at the first point of contact that people have with the healthcare system which is gps opticians etc so really this is why this isn't in any way a financial argument or a, an, a practical argument, it's purely an ideological one. And it's the kind of ideological one, the divide and conquer logic, which has, you know, paid off several of Nick Ferrari's mortgages, I'm sure, because it's the kind of logic and the kind of antagonism that he has trafficked in and, you know, built a whole career on, regardless of the impacts that it has on, on the rest of us. Because he's not going to suffer, I don't know, but a lot of wealthy people 
are likely to have things like private health insurance. It's not the wealthy people that are going to be impacted by these kinds of restrictions. So really, it's a purely ideological war. Um, it's a purely ideological concept. Uh, it fails both in terms of its healthcare benefits and even on its financial benefits, although I don't really think that should be a kind of question in healthcare. Healthcare is about getting people better and giving people the attention they need, not about not about cost cutting. But yeah, it just makes absolutely no sense. I just wanted to pick up on the eugenics thing in case he's, I, I know everyone's getting sued left, right and centre. I mean, I suppose, he, he, I what he would say is, look, no, I'm, I'm saying if you've got a serious illness, I'm not condemning you to death because if you've got a serious illness, you will be entitled to these, well, as, as many GP appointments a year as you want. The problem there, though, which, I mean, as you, you summarise as well, Dahlia, is that illness isn't that simple. You, you can't just have a tick box of, oh, these are genuine reasons to go to a GP. These are not genuine reasons to go to a GP. Obviously, he's picked a very sort of obvious uh, cancer. It's quite easy to tell if someone's got cancer and, or if they haven't got cancer. But there are so many reasons why you might need to go to a GP once or twice a month, which is very difficult to fit into a tick box exercise. If you've got chronic fatigue, if you've got lots of different interlocking health problems. And what's interesting, actually, I went to the study that sort of Nick Ferrari was doing his horrible stump speech about. The, the study found that 40% of GP appointments are taken up by 10% of the public, the people who, who need the most. I didn't actually find that statistic that surprising. I, I, I presumed it probably would have been more because, you know, our, the health of people is, is, is very, very varied. I assumed that the people who need GPs most would see them a higher proportion than that. But in any case, the, the medical researchers who looked into this, they weren't saying, oh, this is such a problem. We need to discourage people from going to the GP. They were saying, and because it had increased, by the way, that was sort of the, the topic of the study. They were saying, we should look at why chronic illness is increasing in Britain. <laughs> Their study was, the problem we have is chronic illness. The problem isn't people faking that they're ill. The problem that we have is, is societal, the kind of things that Nick Ferrari doesn't tend to, the issues that Nick Ferrari doesn't tend to platform on his radio show. Let's go to our final story. I'd call this a good news story as well. It's been a absolutely disastrous month for Boris Johnson. There has been headline after headline about rule-breaking Christmas parties in Downing Street, or summer parties in Downing Street, all during lockdowns. His backbenchers have also given him a black eye in the House of Commons over vaccine passports, and he's dithered in the face of Omicron. He hasn't really looked like he's in control. So a slide in his approval ratings probably didn't come to the Prime Minister as a surprise, though the extent of that slide might have done. These look really, really bad for Boris Johnson. So when asked, this is YouGov, by the way, when asked, do you think Boris Johnson is doing well or badly as Prime Minister? An overwhelming 71% of respondents answered badly, and only 23% thought he was doing well. So 71% say badly, 20, only 23% doing well. Now, that is the lowest his approval rating has been since he became prime minister in 2019. And as the, the Times point out, who I think jointly did this poll with YouGov, is pretty close to Theresa May's ratings in the week before she was forced to resign. So this is the kind of territory where it's difficult to continue in your job. The breakdown of, of these statistics is even worse for the Conservatives, because older people who, who make up the majority of the Conservatives, part, the Conservative Party's support think worse of Boris Johnson now than they ever have. Now, these statistics and the change in them is quite extraordinary. Right now, for those over 65, only 35% of people, 35% um, of people over 65 approve of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, down from a high of 85% in March 2020. So 85% of people in that age category approved of him in 2020, now down to 35. 63% of people actively disapprove of him who are over 65. For people who are aged between 50 and 64, 71% um, think he's doing a bad job. Again, a key demographic that usually swings conservative. And the Tories will also be eyeing the north of England, which was obviously the route to their majority in 2019. There. Boris Johnson also very unpopular. So 70% of people think he's doing a bad job. 26% think he's doing well. That's not the only bad news for Boris Johnson because while Keir Starmer's you know, ratings are not exceptional, they are improving. They're, they're moving in the right direction. So 51% of people still think Keir Starmer is doing a bad job, but that has fallen 
um, and 28% think he's doing a good job. That is rising. So as I say, they're not exceptional, but they're moving in the right direction. Boris Johnson's are moving in the wrong ones. And then when we look at voter intention, focal data, um, their polling suggests that Labour is widening its lead. Labour on 41%, the Conservatives on 34 And the stats for lefties um, who work with Navarra Media sometimes, they think Labour would get a majority. No, they wouldn't get a majority. They get 301 seats compared to the Conservatives' 252. Also significant, this is probably the most significant one, actually. Who would you think make the best Prime Minister? Keir Starmer on 38, Boris Johnson on 34. Dahlia, um, are we going to end the year with the end of Boris Johnson? You know, I, I, I've been really interested in this because I, I don't think this is actually a case of he's done one thing too far or he's taken it too far because this isn't exactly the first time that Boris has been caught in a lie or shown himself to be hypocritical or elitist, you know, one rule for me, one rule for everyone else. So it's not so much that something unprecedented has happened, unprecedented has happened over the past month or so. I wonder if if this is a sense of, you know, people feel worn down. They feel sort of fatigued by being constantly gaslit and taking them for a ride. And the media have kind of given them permission to sort of feel that way. And I don't mean that in a way that sort of takes agency away from people. But the media isn't actively at the moment trying to distract people or to gloss over really important things or to sort of blame other things for what's going on. You, you know, you have to remember that for a lot of this pandemic, the media has been act basically telling us that, you know, don't criticise the government. We need to be united. Boris Johnson's having a really hard time. He's doing as best as anyone could. This is a really difficult circumstances. You know, no one could do it better. And so, you know, so much so that the literal opposition, whose job it is to criticise the government and critique the government and hold the government to account, that they didn't feel able to actually do that because they they would be portrayed as opposition for opposition's sake. So I think what's changed here is not so much that Johnson has done something that he's never done before, that he's crossed some kind of unforgivable line, but it's that the narrative around what he's doing has changed and people are being allowed to kind of follow their instincts, which is to hold the prime minister accountable for the way he is running the COVID response in this country. It's not exactly a controversial thing, but you would think it is controversial because of the way that the media has let him off the hook for very obvious mistakes. Him and also Matt Hancock, other ministers, etc. You know, not not just him. But I also think, you know, looking at those Labour figures and looking at how, yes, there is a rise, but it is sort of a fairly moderate rise given the drop that Boris Johnson is experiencing. It, it's it makes me think that the Labour, that Labour lead isn't really much to do with anything that Labour is doing necessarily. Um, it suggests that it's not the Labour Party that is providing the narrative and organisation that is weakening the Tories, but rather that this is a knock-on, that Starmer's approval ratings rising somewhat is a knock-on effect of Boris Johnson's approval ratings going so, so down. And that what that is not a sustainable situation for the Labour Party. That's not going to be the way that the Labour Party will win an election and have a su successful term. It has to be through proactive action, not through passively waiting for the opposing side to sort of shoot themselves in the foot one too many times. So, so yeah, I think it's it's an interesting development because we were wondering when this would happen. I think we've both been looking at the events over the past two years and thinking, how are his ratings not? on the floor but I think it, it's a combination of sort of fatigue and being worn down on the part of the population and also the fact that the media has you know not tried to provide alternative narratives for why we are in the situation that we're in. Dahlia pleasure speaking to you this evening have a wonderful Christmas. Thanks for having me. Well thank you so much for keeping me company throughout my isolation 
Um, I, I think it's made it way more tolerable than it would have been. And thank you for keeping us company throughout this year. We, we might do a sort of stream before New Year, depending on what's going on in the world um, or, or what, what we plan to do. But this will definitely be the last show before Christmas. So um, have a really good one. If you're in isolation, all my solidarity to you. I've still got loads of people on my Instagram and my Twitter who are t- testing positive now. So they're spending this Christmas um, alone. I hope you find some way to entertain yourself. And I am pretty confident the next Christmas will be better. This Christmas was better than the last and next Christmas will be better than this one. For now, happy holidays. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.